You've heard me talk before about Bob Goff. Bob Goff is a lawyer, and he is a man of great faith, a man who is filled with compassion and really wants to make a difference in this world. He wrote a book entitled, Love Does. It's a wonderful book. I highly encourage it to you. But in the book, he talks about how he got involved working in the country of Uganda. He became aware of the fact that Uganda had been going through a civil war for the last 20 years. And in this war, that wound up dividing the country in a terrible way. And in the northern part of the country, there were no judges who could go to courthouses. And there were no lawyers who were representing clients. And one of the things that had started to happen was lots of juveniles, lots of teenagers, had been accused of petty crimes or maybe more serious crimes. But even if you were just accused of something, you were put into jail and then there was no one to represent you. There was no court, there was no judge, and so you would be in jail. And they found there were so many young people who had been in jail for one, two, three years. And they really had no hope of having their case heard or getting out. Bob wanted to do something about this. And so he's created a, uh, a nonprofit called Restore International to try to help go get these cases tried for all these young juveniles there in Uganda. They got these group of lawyers and they began traveling all around the country going to all these different juvenile jails and seeing what was going on. They went and they bought the entire Ugandan law library. Both books. <laughs> so that they could study them and prepare briefs for court. They finally chose a town to begin. There was less than a hundred kids in this jail. They came and met with the different youth. They learned about their cases. They prepared briefs. Nobody asked them to, but love does. And so they got to know them. They prepared the briefs. They found a judge who was willing to take a chance and come to the courthouse. And he did. And finally the day came, the judge was there. The parents came, the accusers came, the lawyers came in, the children were brought in, and there was this heavy feeling in this courtroom. I mean, there was such a stigma in this society for a child being put into prison. Many of them had not seen their parents in over a year, some for two. And so... Bob said this judge then did something that he had no idea he was going to do that was just brilliant. He said, we all got into the courtroom and we were there. The kids were looking over their shoulders of their parents. You could see how ashamed they were. And finally the judge said, all right, I'd like all the kids to leave. They took them away to a room. And then he began to admonish the parents and said, you must forgive your children. Whether they are guilty or not. You must tell them that you forgive them and you love them, or they can't go forward. After he had admonished the parents, he left the courtroom, and then he went to the room to where the kids were. And he came into the room and he said, Good news! Your parents have forgiven you. He then brought them all back into the courtroom, and they began to go through and hear the cases one by one. In the end, Bob and his lawyers 
had prepared 72 cases, they would take 70 children back home to their families with all charges resolved. Seventy children were set free and went back to life. And they started doing that over and over again throughout the country. Why does Bob Goff do it? He'll tell you. Love does. And what he's discovered is it's fun to be nice. This morning, I want to begin a new sermon series. It's fun to be nice. You know, you and I live in a challenging time in our history. We, we live in a time where we hear over and over again about mass shootings. We hear about incredible terrorist acts. You listen to the harsh rhetoric of our political campaigns. We live in a time where there seems to be meanness, where we are divided, where we are extremes on the right and the left. We live in a time where it sure is easy to become cynical, to become afraid, to become harsh ourselves, to try to make it in this kind of a world. And what we forget is the way to approach the kind of world in which we live is not with a harshness or a cynicism, but it's with faith. Faith is not a scribed set of beliefs. Faith is trusting in God's love for us, His children, and to approach it with compassion. The word literally means to feel with. It's not sympathy to feel sorry for. It's compassion to feel with. When I put myself in your place and I sense your pain and I hurt with you, that's compassion. And if we trust God's love, if we live in faith and it moves us to compassion, you approach a world that can be harsh and hateful and angry in a whole different way. You literally approach it with kindness. And what you discover is that even in this kind of world, it's fun to be nice. It's what four friends discovered in their scripture lesson this morning. I love this scripture lesson. A story of how Jesus, early in his ministry, had come to Capernaum. People were just starting to learn about Jesus. He wanted to hear what he had to say. What was he teaching? He was healing people. And when they heard he was at this house, they came flocking to the house. Now there were four men. They were friends. And when they heard Jesus was there, they wanted to go see him. But they also thought about their friend. A friend who was paralyzed. And rather than just rushing themselves to come see Jesus, they went to go find their friend. They got their friend and they put him on like a stretcher, this pallet. And each one picked up a corner and they carried him to where Jesus was. But when they got there, they were now late. This place was packed. Inside, it was packed. People were hanging out of the windows, around the door, outside. But these four friends, they were not to be deterred. They went up the stairs on the outside of the house and onto this flat roof. 
you got to understand, in that day, houses were all built with outdoor staircases and a flat roof. You built your walls, then you put down beams, you covered them with branches and then mud. If you were a little wealthier, then you'd also put down tiles. You created an outdoor room. When it was extra hot, you didn't sleep downstairs. You went upstairs and there you slept on the roof. It was cooler. It was another whole room for privacy. Well, they went up onto this flat roof. You couldn't hear or see Jesus, but they knew how this thing was built. And so they went over and started pulling away the dirt, the tiles, the palm branches. Now, now, can you imagine Jesus? You're sitting here, you're talking to all these people and teaching, and you're teaching away, and you start hearing something going on overhead. And you look up and the roof is being torn up and suddenly here comes this guy down through the roof being held by ropes on four corners lowered in front of you. Now I got to tell you, I pride myself in being able to preach through chaos. I don't know that I could preach through a guy coming down the roof here in front of me. And sure enough, I love the line where it says, and Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. Jesus did not say, how good are you? Are you keeping the Big Ten? Are you keeping a kosher kitchen? Now, now he didn't try to see, do you believe all the right things? No, what Jesus looked at him and saw was, they sure did trust in God's love. They really believed God's love could heal their friend. And what love must they have for their friend to go do this? He saw their faith. And so he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Now, understand in that day, if you got sick, then you must have sinned. Everybody believed you sinned if you got sick. It was a punishment. Now, we don't believe that. And I don't think Jesus believed that. But Jesus knew, like that judge knew, If you don't have the kids know forgiveness and love, it's hard to go forward. And Jesus wanted this man to know, you are loved by God. Your sins are forgiven. And then the men standing around said, how can he say this? I mean, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus said, well, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. And his man throws his legs over the side of the bed. He picks up his pallet and he walks out the door. Now you can only imagine, there's a lot of excitement in that room. And there sure are a whole lot of sermons to be preached here. The power of Jesus to heal, the power of Jesus to forgive, the man who forgets his sins forgiven. But I want us today to focus on these four faithful friends. And I want us to think about, when they went home that night, how did they feel? They knew it was fun to be nice. And it is. This morning I want us to look at the scripture lesson. We need to ask three important questions. One, why did they do it? Why did these four faithful friends go get this man who was paralyzed and bring him to Jesus? And I think the answer is simple. They had made a fundamental conscious decision in life to be kind. In this world there are two kinds of people. There are givers And there are takers. 
And some people in this world want the world to revolve around them. It's all about me. And what can I have? And do other people act the way I want them to act? It's all about me. They're takers. And other people have made a fundamental decision to be kind, to see the needs of somebody else and to want to reach out and to bless. As people of faith, we believe it's because God loved us that we now want to love other people. We want to be kind. You know, one of the kindest people that I've ever come to know is a lady named Rachel Rimmon. I mean, if you'll remember, we brought Rachel Rimmon here to speak years ago. She's an author who has written a couple of books, some of my all-time favorite books, My Grandfather's Blessing and Kitchen Table Wisdom. They're such great books, I recommend them to you. But these books, I've read them many times, but I'll find that when I get kind of discouraged and I get tired, I'll go pick one up and read a chapter again. It always lifts my spirits. You know, Rachel was in her mid-40s when her mom was in her mid-80s. And her mom needed bypass surgery. And she went in and had the surgery and did well. She came through the surgery, but in the end, she started having complications and had to go to ICU. She was in ICU for a long time, and, and she began to get disoriented. You may have had a loved one who's been in ICU for an extended period of time. You start getting confused. What's the day? What's who? Where am I? And her mom seemed to be getting confused. Her mom started seeing all kinds of relatives and friends who were dead and was talking to them. And so the nurses told Rachel, you need to straighten her out and try to help her get back on track. Rachel came in one day to see her mom and she looked very clear-eyed and, and looked very bright. And it pleased Rachel and she said, Mom, how are you doing today? I'm great. Do you know who I am? Well, of course I do. You're Rachel, my only child, my daughter. Oh, Mom, it is so great. And she went over to sit down and her mother hollered, Don't sit down on your grandmother. Rachel looked at this empty chair. I mean, truth is, she'd never met her grandmother. Her grandmother, Rachel, had died before she was born. She'd been living in Russia. She was Jewish, as all the family. But living as a Jew in Russia in the 1900s, that was not an easy time. There was great persecution, difficult. But every said, one said her mother, grandmother was just a saint. A lady who was so kind and so giving and in the spite of all the persecution was always just a, a caring, giving, kind soul. And since her mother seemed so adamant, Rachel decided not to argue. She went out and got another chair and brought it back in and sat it down beside her grandmother. And her mom looked over at these two chairs and said, I'm so glad both of you are here. She said, Rachel, I want you to meet your grandmother. And mom, I want you to meet your granddaughter. And then she started to tell her mom all about what Rachel had done, about how she'd had an illness when she was a child, had fought through it, gone to medical school, become a doctor, begin teaching on Stanford on the staff. She told her mom all about what Rachel had done. And then she stopped and waited, and then she started laughing and started speaking back, and Rachel could tell she was answering a question. And she sat there for a while in silence, realizing she was hearing half a conversation of questions being asked and things being shared and talking about relatives and friends. And she just sat there listening to half. 
And finally her mom looked at her mother and said, I'm so sorry that my daughter has gone by the name Naomi. That's her middle name. It's the name of my husband's family. I named her Rachel, you know, after you. I named her Rachel because I wanted her to have your kind heart. She said her mother smiled and leaned back on her pillow and then opened her eyes back up and said, I'm glad both of you are here because I know that soon one of you are going to take me home. And Rachel said it was about a week later that her grandmother took her mom home. But Rachel said, I didn't forget that conversation. I just kept wrestling with it because the truth of the matter was, I didn't have a kind heart. Growing up with Crohn's disease and growing up with so many struggles and with health, she said she'd become a fighter. She went to medical school in the 1950s. There were only two women in her medical school class. She said, you talk about harassed and oppressed and treated poorly. They had to fight. And then she became on staff the only woman on the staff for the medical school at Stanford in the 1960s. And she said, oh, I was told what I could do and couldn't do. And again, I was so harassed. She said, I had to fight every step of the way. She said, I'd become very successful, but it wasn't because I had a kind heart. And so when Rachel turned 50, she decided to have a change in her career. And she opened up a place called the Common Wheel Cancer Center. It was a place for people to come who had cancer in order to find hope, encouragement, to be loved, to find healing physically, spiritually, emotionally. But on her 50th birthday, she wrote all of her family and friends and said, I don't want you to call me Naomi anymore. From now on, I want you to call me by my real name, which is Rachel. Because that's the person God has called me to be. God calls all of us to a kind heart. It's a fundamental conscious decision that you make. There were four friends who could have run to see Jesus. But they went to go get their friend. Because they were kind. Secondly, how did they do it? And I love this story. They were so creative. They persisted to go up the steps, tear up the roof. It's the only place I've read that kind of answer to a problem. No, they were creative. They were persistent. But what I like to see is they did it because there was four of them. They did it together. One of them couldn't have done it on their own. It took all four of them to pick up each corner of the pallet and be able to carry it. How did they do it? They did it together. And that's how kind people help to change the world, together. One of the things that Marsh and I saw when we traveled to England this summer to go on the spiritual pilgrimage of following John Wesley's life is we went all around England and seeing how John Wesley had traveled a quarter of a million miles on horseback there in the 1700s, riding everywhere, pulling people together in these classes, these small groups. 
And the people who became Methodists, typically, so many of them, were poor. And he brought them together. And when they'd come together in these small classes, he'd get them set up and move on, and then come back and check. But in these classes, they were supposed to come and still give, even though they were poor. And they would come and pool their money. And there's five things he expected these Methodists to do. One, provide food and clothing to the poor. Two, to get materials like plows and hoes and seed so people could go plant crops. These little groups made small loans to people with no interest. People who couldn't get loans. Today we call them micro-loans and people win Nobel Prizes for it. John Wesley was doing it back in the 1700s. Three, it costs money to go to school. Every place should offer school for the children of the poor. Four, every adult should know how to read. If you know how to read, then you have to mentor and help adults who are illiterate. Every adult should read. Five, free medical care. Everybody needs access to medical care. This is what John Wesley was doing in the 1700s and all these groups that he got together And what we know is John Wesley took the group of people who were the socioeconomic low class and by the end of his lifetime were middle and middle upper class. Historians say John Wesley literally saved England in the 1700s and the Industrial Revolution. And how did he do it? By faithful people who made a fundamental decision to be kind to give their time, their talents, their money in order to bless life. They did it together and they changed England in the 1700s. There were four faithful friends, four friends who helped bring a man to Jesus. And so three, what was the result? It's a miracle. There was a healing This paralyzed man was able to get up and walk and go home. To be restored to life. To be restored to his family. I mean, it was amazing. Can you imagine what the party was like that night back home? If you wake up in the morning and you're paralyzed and can't walk and have no hope, and that evening you're now walking, I have a feeling there was a mighty fine party that night. He was healed. But how do you feel the four friends were thinking? What do you think they were feeling? It is true it was God's grace that healed the man. But it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't had four friends. And those four friends knew it. You know they went home that night and they were proud. They were excited. What had they done for their friend? They knew it's fun to be nice. You know today... We have a group of people from our St. Luke's family of faith in Ulyanovs, Russia. Ulyanovs, Russia is the birthplace of Vladimir Lenin. We've been going there now since June of 1992. And as I was thinking about our group going there today, what a great day to be there because today is World Wide Communion Sunday. A Sunday when Christians around the world of all different denominations are taking Holy Communion in a symbolic act that says we are all God's children and we all recognize we stand in the need of God's grace. People around the world are receiving communion today 
And we have our people who are in Ulyanovsk receiving communion on this day. And as I got to thinking about it, I thought, you know, I, I throw out things like Ulyanovsk and what we do. And then it also occurred to me, you know, in the last six years, we've had more than 2,000 people join this church. And it sure is easy to start taking some things for granted that you know the church's story, our history. And sometimes we need to hear it again. It was back in 1992. We didn't send four friends to Russia. We sent 40 faithful friends. It cost us $100,000. Our budget back in those days was $1.1 million. We raised 10% outside the budget to say, let's go change the world. Let's go do our part to make a difference. The wall had just come down in Russia. And we went to a closed city where there had been no foreigners, no Americans in almost 70 years. And so 40 of us traveled to Ulyanovsk, Russia. We would be broken up in pairs. We'd be assigned to live in people's homes we did not know. They did not know us. And there we would go and be for the next um, seven, eight days. While we traveled over there, two of the people who went were Paula Severe and Twyla Thornton. They were together and they were assigned to a home um, of Sasha and Margaret. It turned out that Margaret was an English teacher. What a lucky break for them. Most of us were assigned to homes where people didn't speak any English. And so you lived the next seven days, you know, with sign language and grunts and groans and sounds to try to communicate. And, but they actually had a lady who could speak some English. And they came to their home and, and said when they got there, Margaret said, why don't you stay in our bedroom as one bedroom? We will sleep out here on the sofa and the floor. They were so hospitable. That night they sat down to have dinner. Margaret served the first course and then she was serving the second course. And when she did, she served it and then she looked very much right at Paula and Twyla and said, All right, why are you here? What do you want from us? They were very suspicious. I mean, why would Americans travel all the way from America to the town of Ulyanovsk, the birthplace of Vladimir Lenin, to go stay in the homes of very ordinary people? What do you want? Why are you really here? Then Paula spoke up and said, well, we're here to become friends. We want to get to know you. We want you to get to know us. We would like to become friends. We think it's a better world if we become friends. And we hope to find some people here who want to help start a Methodist church. Margaret turned and translated to her husband, and they kind of narrowed their eyes. And then she turned around to Paul and said, you know we are atheists. No, no, didn't know that fact. <laughs> she thought, oh boy, I've just upset and offended my host, and I've got seven nights to go. This isn't going to be so much fun. So they changed the topic to family. It turned out that, that they had a boy and a girl, just like Paul and David had a boy and a girl. And they started talking about their daughter, Marina. She had a daughter named Lena. When Lena was only three months old, she ran a very high fever, and it took her hearing. Her little daughter was deaf, Margaret's granddaughter. And in those days, Russia wanted to take deaf children from their families and stick them in an institution so they wouldn't be a burden on the state. And Marina and... And Margaret had to fight and sign all kinds of forms about how they would raise her in order to be able to keep their daughter, the granddaughter. And so they were able to keep Lena. 
She was a young child. And Paula said, so what does Lena like to do? Well, like all little girls, she said, she likes to play with dolls. She likes dolls. Her dream is a Barbie doll. But there are no Barbie dolls here in Ulyanovsk. You can get them in Moscow, but they're 40, 45 U.S. dollars. Way more money than we have. Certainly more money than we could ever spend on a doll. So she will just have to wish for that. And Paula thought of how right before we left to go, we'd said to all the people who are traveling, you need to take gifts for your host family. I know you don't know who they are, but you need to gather up your gifts, things that you could bring for them. And Paula had been praying, what do I take to my host family? She called her granddaughter Taylor and said, do you have a Barbie doll you might like to give to some girl in Russia? And her granddaughter Taylor said, absolutely. And so she gave her a Barbie doll and some clothes and she wrote a letter, I'd like to be a pen pal, and got a picture of herself smiling and and they wrapped it up and put that on the package. And at the last moment, Paula threw it in her bag and off they went to, to Russia. And now she was sitting in this home, the only member of our delegation to have a Barbie doll. And she said, I have a Barbie doll. What? I have a Barbie doll that I brought for a girl. I'd love to give it to your granddaughter. She ran to the phone and she quickly called Marina. And here came Marina. And here came Lena. And Paula went and got the present and brought it back to her. She sat and she just held it in her lap. She wouldn't open it. She was simply looking at the face of this little girl looking up at her. Finally she opened it up and here was this beautiful Barbie doll with blonde hair just like Lena. She took this doll out so lovingly and began to brush her hair. Everyone there had tears streaming down their cheeks. And it was Margaret who finally said, This doesn't just happen. There must be a God. It started the conversation. She came to the worship service we held. And then before long, we brought all those people we stayed with to the United States to live in our homes. They came to worship here at St. Luke's to get to know you, to see how we can love and laugh and be a family of faith. And then they traveled back home to Ulyanovsk. And when they got back home, Margaret said, I want to know more. I'm going to church. Educators are incredibly respected in Russia. She had been a principal of a number of schools. And when she said, I'm going to church, it gave many people permission to say, I'll go to church too. And so they came. Margaret was one of the first lay leaders, like chairman of the board of this new church. Three years later, we would save up the money and we'd bring all the family back here to the United States. And now we took Lena to the Huff Hearing Institute. And Dr. Huff was so gracious to see her and to fit her with hearing aids. And now as this little girl, for the first term in her life, they turned on these hearing aids and she could hear the voice of her parents and grandparents. We changed her life. Twenty-three years ago we went. She has now grown up, was able to go to college, get her degree. She got married to a young man who has hearing disabilities. They now have twins, two children, a boy and a girl. She's a graphic artist and they live in Moscow. 
but the whole family is a family of faith and how they live their lives. I think of this church in Ulyanovs today and how out of that church there came Dina. We baptized on our first trip. She heard God's call, became a Methodist minister and serves there in Ulyanovsk. There was Katya Marsakova, a young teenager who heard God's call, came to the United States, went to school, could have served any church here in the United States, would have been glad to have her. And instead, she heard the call and went with her family back to Russia. And she serves in Siberia, where she is starting a new church. And I think today how 23 years later, 11 time zones before us, there was a group of people who are celebrating Holy Communion and giving God thanks for the gift of His amazing grace. Nine time zones earlier than us, there was a group of people in Ulyanovsk who came together to worship and to give God thanks and to celebrate communion. And now here we are in Oklahoma City, on the other side of the world, going to celebrate communion. It's called the Eucharist, which is the Greek word for thanksgiving meal. We give thanks for God's grace. And when you know what it means to trust God's love, then you choose to be kind. And we do it together. And together we are able to help change the world. Miracles happen. We share God's love and bring hope to the world. And what you discover is it's fun to be nice. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.